Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 13 today, which we have here in front of us the second of the servant songs that we see in Isaiah. We're getting ready to run through a lot of them in short order. Before we look at this section of God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we will see here from the prophet Isaiah words concerning your coming and concerning the work that you did on earth and the work that you're doing even now as we speak. And Lord, we pray then that you would be here among us as we open your word. On our best days, we have so little wisdom, so little understanding. And so, Lord, we need you to be here with us to open our hearts and minds that we might be changed by your word and that we might glorify your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this passage, you see from the title of the sermon that there's this idea of a polished arrow. So of course it made me think of one of my favorite uh, works of literature and that is The Hobbit. It's been a little while since I've had a token reference, so I felt like it was time and thankfully it was, I saw the arrow there and it just made sense. And so there's this character in The Hobbit and his name is Bard of Lake Town. He is the captain of the guard. He's a skilled archer. And there's a whole lot that we could say about Bard, but we're not going to say it because I don't want to spoil the story. I have a history of doing that. So I don't want to spoil the story for you. If you haven't read The Hobbit, you should go do it. It's one of the best things ever printed. Don't watch the movies. Just leave those alone. Just... <laughs> Just watch or just go read the book. It's so good and it's so easy and it's not very long. But anyway, what does Bard have to do with Isaiah? Um, Well, Bard has an arrow in his quiver called the Black Arrow. And we aren't quite sure what's so special about the Black Arrow other than it was made in a dwarven forge, which kind of gives it some inherent magical properties. And every time that Bard used it for whatever he used it for, he was always able to recover it. And so every time he fired it, it accomplished its purpose, and then he was able to retrieve it, which is pretty cool for an arrow. And it's not like Bard just used it all the time, as it was just kind of one of the arrows. But it was a special arrow that was hidden away for special occasions. You need to read the, the book to find out what that special occasion was. You go, go read The Hobbit. It's amazing. In our text today... We'll see the Lord talking about another special arrow in his quiver. He calls it a polished arrow that is hidden away for special uses. This polished arrow is none other than his servant. We know the servant of God to be Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he is going to use this arrow for the special task of delivering his covenant people. In this passage, we see Jesus as the true remnant of God going out to deliver his people from their oppressors, which were oppressors that are as old as time itself, sin and death. And those people aren't just from the nation of Israel, we're going to see. This isn't just native Israelites that he's going to save, but from all over the world, from every nation, just like we sang a minute ago. This is the second of the servant songs in Isaiah. And as we 
are about to go through, again, we're about to go through each one of them in kind of quick succession as we go through the, the next few chapters. And as we do, we're going to get a picture of our Lord Jesus from the prophet, again, who existed hundreds of years before Jesus came. And yet we see these very clear pictures of him. God's redemptive plan is the same for people whenever they were born. Even the people of Isaiah's day, the people who would read this as they were marching out of Babylon from exile, they were looking for the same Savior that we look back to, this same Jesus Christ. And so as we go to this text, we're going to break it down into two main ideas, the servant's task and then the servant's success. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 49, starting at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he called, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are dark, in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the way. On all bare heights shall see their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of the Cyrene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we get into this Isaiah 49, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 42. 
And this was the first of those servant songs. I just want to read the first portion of this. Just so again we can kind of familiarize ourselves with the Lord's dealings with this person called the servant. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I... Whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, in the coastlands. Wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gave, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. We saw that in our text today. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so we have this picture here of this servant. And again, we're going to see this several times as we go on through the text. But here in Isaiah 42, what I just read, we see him acting as a king. That he's going to bring justice to the nations as only a king can do. The coastlands, we hear, wait for his law. Who sets the law down? Only the king can do that. We know that the coming Messiah would be the one who would sit on the throne of David for all eternity. Read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Isaiah knew that. The people in Isaiah's day knew that. And so here is this coming king who is going to be the very coming of the covenant promises himself. He's going to be the covenant that is given to the people. And so as we transition to Isaiah 49 today, we see the servant in more of a role as a prophet. He is coming as the mouthpiece of God. He is coming speaking and proclaiming the truth of God to people who are trapped in darkness. Oftentimes we talk of the threefold office of our Lord Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. You've probably heard those before. Our confession and our catechisms deal with that directly. And these are things that we believe because we see them all throughout Scripture, just like we see in these two passages that we just read. That he works in these ways. Here we see the beginning of that. We see it throughout the entirety of scripture again. We're going to see his priestly duties coming into full effect as we talk about the suffering servant in the chapters to come. This is an important thing for us to remember as we're reading from the Old Testament. That we again, I'm going to remind you this a lot. You're going to hear me say this a lot because we need reminded. We derive our beliefs concerning the faith and what we believe from the entirety of Scripture. Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. It's useful for us to see our theology and the way that we look at the, at the Scriptures, looking at this throughout, that Jesus is this promise that is given from God the Father throughout all of the Scriptures. We call this covenant theology as a fancy name, but it's really just seeing the promises of God throughout all of Scripture and all of them being fulfilled in the one Jesus Christ. And again, we see here that he's not coming to just save a particular nation. 
He's not just coming to save that nation called Israel, but he's coming to save all of his people who are from all the nations of the world. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we sang earlier, would be called the people of God because of the work of the servant of God. And that brings me to the first point, the servant's task. Look with me again in Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made me, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Notice here the servant that he's calling to. And he's, he's not just calling the people, he's not just calling to these people that are close to him, but he's calling out to all the coastlands from the people that are afar. It's a similar language that we just read in 42. Again, this highlights the fact that the servant of the Lord is not only coming to redeem the people Israel, yes, he's coming to redeem that nation, people from that nation, but he's also coming to redeem people from all over the world. We are all a, a demonstration of that here this morning. Again, remember the promises that he gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through the seed of Abraham, which is pointing to Jesus Christ, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We see this coming to fruition through this servant. We saw it happen in the ministry of Jesus while he was on earth. We saw it happen in the ministry of the apostles in the New Testament. Who was there to hear Peter's sermon on that Pentecostal morning? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People heard that that morning. And so here we see him giving these promises to the whole world. Then he goes on, from the body of my mother. This should take us back. When I read this, it made me think of in Matthew chapter 1, we read about Joseph. And he was wondering what to do because all of a sudden Mary is pregnant and they're not even married yet. And what happened? And he was concerned and the angel came to him and he gave him the name that he would be named. But we read here in Isaiah that he was already named way before time and eternity. That name, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The servant's mouth is said to be a sharp sword, an image that's picked up by many New Testament writers, but specifically in the Revelation, when John talks about the image of the Son of God riding forth and what's in his mouth, a sword, which is the very word of God, proclaiming the word of God. And then we see this imagery of the arrow. And again, like the black arrow that Bard of Lake Town had, we had this polished arrow of the Father which is his own son that he will send out to be sent for a very specific task, which is the redemption of his covenant people. Notice in verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He's not shifting his focus to talk to the whole nation here. He's still talking to the servant. And so he calls this servant Israel, which is the theme that we've dealt with before, that you've heard me talk about before. He's reiterating the fact that Israel as a nation, what have they done up to this point in Scripture? What have they done all along throughout Scripture? They have failed to follow the commandments of God. And so one had to be sent from among them. Abraham's seed, David's son, yet David's Lord 
had to be sent from among them to redeem them. And so he looks at his son and he calls him Israel as the one who was going to go redeem. The son of God became man. He dwelt among them. He was the true Israel because what did he do? Well, he finally kept the terms of the covenant, obeying the law, something the people couldn't possibly do. And in doing so, what he did is he opened up a relationship for the father to have with sinful man, whom he died to redeem. This is the task that the servant is sent on. While the people in Isaiah's day, as they read this, they only saw it dimly. They looked forward to it. They looked forward to the time when the servant would come and do the work that he was supposed to do. We see it today. We see it with a giant spotlight. Because of the work that we see Christ doing and the apostles doing in the New Testament. This is why we don't accept the fact that Jewish people are still looking for a Savior. We don't accept that because we know that the Savior has come. The Old and New Testaments come together to point to this one, Jesus Christ, who now reigns forevermore. And I love verse 4. Notice the humanity that we see here of the servant in verse 4. But I said, this is the servant speaking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is what is with, is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. It might bother us to read this because we're like, oh, he's supposed to be this polished arrow, right? He's going out to redeem and we see him a little bit frustrated here. If we didn't have the picture of the Gospels and we read this same sort of thing from Jesus all the time, we just went through Mark. Consider how many times Jesus was frustrated with the unbelief of the people. Why can't you just see and believe? Particularly the nation of Israel that had all of those gifts and should have been looking forward to this, right? They had Isaiah's words. They should have been looking forward to him coming. They were, and they, he came, and they missed it. It makes, it makes me think of a passage, Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus looks at the leaders that he's, that he's talking to and arguing with, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You get this kind of frustration here in Isaiah 49. And again, it's not as if the son is, doesn't have the ability to change the hearts of the people. We see that all throughout the scriptures. But it shows the long suffering that he has of the people. It's not as if they just started sinning. They've been doing it all along since the garden. And he's had to deal with that. And now he has, a, he's, he has this plan and he's going to go and he's going to save them. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God to become, has, my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvations may reach the ends of the earth. We see here the work of the servant. Notice the tone. This is not a task that he is being sent to possibly succeed at. You know, it's not a task that he's being sent off to do something and we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. 
Not at all. He plans exactly to succeed this task that he has been sent out to do. He plans to bring all of those who were, as the text said, preserved of Israel, who have been set aside, as Paul says, from the foundations of the earth, have been set aside for this. And there are a few things for us here. The big thing being that when it comes to the work of the Lord, it is definitely something that he can and will complete. And I think that a lot of times, brothers and sisters in Christ, we struggle with this. We've talked about this the last few weeks as we talked about the work that he's doing in us even now, completing this work in us as his people, the sanctification process, making us more and more holy. And sometimes it's easy for us to get frustrated think well i'm just tired of doing these same sins well it's a work that he is doing it's a work that he will see to completion but here this is a different work that's going on this is a work of gathering all of his people from the farthest reaches of the world and bringing them in and it's a work that you and i brothers and sisters in christ share in in fact we've been commanded to take part in this task When Jesus, the servant of God, commanded us to go into all the nations and make disciples, he is recruiting us to this task that he was sent to do. Does he need us? Is it as if he's somehow depleted his resources and needs a few others to come alongside and help finish? Of course not. That's not what's going on here. But he's choosing us as the means to bring about the completion of of this task by which he will definitely succeed. And that brings us to the second point, the servant's success. Look with me at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Here we see a glimpse of what's in store for the servant of God. We get a clearer picture of this as we move forward in this book. He's not going to be loved. He's going to be abhorred, deeply despised, a servant to rulers. So this is called the servant of God who's going out and to complete the task is also being called a servant to rulers, which seems odd to us. It points to the humility of Christ, subjecting himself to the rulers of the world for the time that he was on earth. It points to the attitudes that they have toward him. They hate him because he's not just another person that calls himself Messiah. He's not, I mean, back in this time in Jerusalem's history when Christ was on the earth, there were lots of people who called themselves Messiahs. And they could just go and stamp them out and it wasn't that big of a deal. Jesus wasn't this. They knew it. They hated him. He was the very son of God. It makes me think of the parable of the tenants that we studied in Mark. Where, where the, 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 the wine dresser left the, the vineyard and he left it to some tenants. And every once in a while he would send a prophet or somebody like that to go and check on the, t- the, the vineyard. And what would happen? Well, they would beat him up. Or they would send him back with nothing. And they thought, well, maybe if I, if I can send my son... They will treat him with respect. Remember the parable. What happened to the son? They killed him. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. And that's not how it works out. 
It shouldn't surprise us that the world hates the one true king of the world. They've hated him since Genesis. It's not going to change. It'll continue to happen that way until he comes back. But their love or hate doesn't matter because notice, they will still be subject to him in the end. What does it say? Kings and princes shall see they will prostrate themselves because it's the Lord who is faithful. In verses 8 through 10 is where I want to really focus this morning. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages or inheritances. It's another way that you can see that. Here the father says to the servant that he intends to give him as a covenant for the people. And again, this is at the very center of what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is not a little instruction book for us on how to live. It is a story about Jesus Christ. He is given as a covenant for his people. God has a people for himself. He is set aside from all the foundations of the world. And in order to save those people, he had to come himself. He sent his son to do that work. The servant is given as a covenant. He himself, again, being a full testament of God's promises to his people and the hopes of those people for salvation. And I love that line, the last line of verse 8. To apportion the desolate heritages. Not words that we use very often. But this is the hope that we have. This is the promise of the hope that is going to come true. That when Jesus came, he came to deliver a people who once had nothing. Peter puts it in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He says, you who were once not a people, you became a people. You are now the people of God. You who once had nothing now are considered the people of the most high creator. That word there, that apportion, that's not a word that we use very often in our English language, but it literally means cause to inherit, to cause someone to inherit something. The picture here is, again, someone who has nothing, but all of a sudden, because of a decision that's made from someone outside of them, they all of a sudden have everything. They go from having nothing at all and no, no reason to have nothing. And now they have everything. It's not like an inherit, like a standard kind of inheritance. You know, like when your, when your parents die, there's that you inherit their things. It's not this at all. You inherit their things because you're, they're their actual child. This is someone who's not the child who's still getting an inheritance, who's still getting something. When Jesus came, he came to a portion, or another word to, to think about this is reassign the desolate heritages of his people. Well, why do we have these desolate heritages? Well, just look at our lives before Christ. For those of you who don't remember a life before Christ, thanks be to God that you don't, just look at the world around you. Look at the dust that they gather for themselves. 
hoping to find some meaning in it. We've been studying in Ecclesiastes. We see this point blank. Hoping to find some meaning in the world and it's not there. It's all striving after the wind. That is a desolate heritage, my friends. But when Christ came, what did he do? He came to reassign those things. And understand this because this is something that you hear every week here from this pulpit. What did he reassign? Well, he took that desolate heritage that I deserve upon himself. And what is the heritage that the son of man, the servant of God, the living God, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity? What is the heritage that he deserves? The eternal throne. He is the only begotten son. Of course, he deserves the inheritance of God. He should sit on his throne forever. But what did he do? He took my desolate heritage on himself and gave to me an eternal inheritance. All praise and glory and honor and power is what he deserves. Yet he traded that for my desolation. He incurred the wrath of God that was due to you and I so that we could have eternal life. And notice what he left us, verses 9 and 10. Saying to the prisoners, that's us, come out. Those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. All the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. This is directly quoted in Revelation 7, by the way. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. This is an immediate picture for those being set, who are going to set out from Babylon after the exile, of course. But the ultimate picture of what Christ has done for his sinful people. He reassigned our desolate heritage. He took upon himself what I was owed and gave me what he was owed. The right to be called a son of God. To be named joint heirs. Just to think about that for a minute. We're named joint heirs with Jesus. It doesn't make sense. We deserve this desolate heritage. But because of the work of the servant of God, we have been named his joint heir. Rather than have no inheritance again, we have the ultimate inheritance. And it's something that we have in Jesus Christ. So if you're not in Christ, this is something that you can have. It's not as if you have to sit on the outside. If you're an unbeliever, you currently have a desolate heritage before you. You have no hope. Just look around you. Tell me where there's hope in this world. There's none. It's all desolation. Rather than hoping in nothing, hoping the promises of God, the one who came himself as a covenant for his people, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But Christians, notice what he's done. As he's called out to the nations, he's, he's given this to the whole nations. I will make my mountains a road. My highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. He's called them from all the, all the world. He's made a highway. I mean, this isn't new imagery in Isaiah. We've seen this a bunch. Just like the preaching of John the Baptist in the New Testament prepared the way for the Lord. We too share in that. 
preaching of the gospel, sharing the hope that we have with the lost world, is preparing a way for him. Jesus has already made the way straight. He's removed all the obstacles. He's done the hard work. He did the exchange that we don't deserve. He didn't leave those things for us to do because we can't do the simplest things. Not only that, we couldn't do it even if we wanted to. He had to do that work for us. And so what did he leave for us? Simply sharing the hope that we have. And he chooses things that will only glorify him. It's not as if I received glory for being up here. What did, what did Paul say preaching was? Foolishness. But this is the task that he's called us to do, brothers and sisters in Christ. To share the hope that we have. And notice, too, understand this, brothers and sisters, as we think about sharing the hope that we have, and maybe maybe think about that with some trepidation. Well, I don't know if I can talk to people about that. It's not as if the outcome is in flux. It's not as if we somehow, in our abilities and our lack thereof, maybe, of ability... Uh, or maybe this outcome is in question and maybe God shouldn't have trusted us to do something so important. It's not that it at all. He's already completed the task. It is finished is what he said. We aren't waiting for him to accomplish the task. And so then what do we do? We preach and we teach expectantly, knowing that he is gathering up those for himself and he's using the preaching of the gospel as a means to do that. And that's the glory of the message that we have. We're just simply called to be his ambassadors, his spokespeople to a dying world. We don't have anything to offer but Jesus Christ. Nothing to offer. We don't have the power to save, so we can't offer that. We don't have the power to change the world by ourselves. Of course we don't. And so we only speak about the one who absolutely can. Jesus Christ. And I think so many times when we think of evangelism as an arduous task, we think of it, we think of it as a, a winning and a losing. And we shouldn't do that because it's already been won. The score's a billion to zero. The, the task is done. We should see it as a task that we take part in as part of a master plan of a servant of God to call a people to himself. Are all people his people? No. Do we know which ones are? Nope. So what do we do? We preach the gospel to everybody. The simple gospel so that anyone and everyone can hear. And we have to preach it to ourselves as well because we easily forget this hope. Brothers and sisters, we forget the hope that we have. And so in conclusion, let us submit to the servant of God, Jesus Christ, not only his work in our own lives, but his work in the rest of the world. Let us be faithful servants to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have done the work. Were any bit of it left up to us, we would have failed over and over and over. But yet you have completed the task. So Lord, help us to just simply be your ambassadors, ambassadors of hope and life to a world of desolation and death. We pray this in your name. Amen. So at this time, please stand with me as we sing our response to God's word.